the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by giving us a high rating on iTunes. With us today is a historic thought leader in American business, Tom Peters. He burst onto the national scene with his classic, In Search of Excellence, in the 1980s. Recognized as a founder of the management consulting profession, Peters has peered into the future, seen the coming waves of the zeitgeist, and helped us all navigate it effectively. He early recognized the portentous changes of the internet and set out the vision of Brand U for our entrepreneurial moment. His latest book, The Excellence Dividend, is described by the late John Bogle, legendary founder of Vanguard Investments, as a bundle of beautiful dynamite. Perhaps most apt, Tom Peters is known as the Red Bull of management thinking. Tom Peters, it's an honor to welcome you to Serve to Lead. Well, it's my great pleasure. You and I have known each other for quite a while, and so this is a real treat, even though we're doing it uh, microphone to microphone. Well, thank you. It's a great honor to have you, and I'm among the many who revere your work and example. Would you share with us who has influenced your thinking and development over the years? Well, they say, and this is not going to be an ego comment, they say that creativity is a function of, was that Edward de Bono stuff, lateral thinking. And I think I'm a pretty good lateral thinker, and I know why. And that is, in two words, my mother. Uh, my mother was a force of nature, and I know it's you know, kind of the cheapest thing in the world to say, well, I owe it all to my mother, except that I owe it all to my mother. <laughs> she, uh, she had me reading from more or less birth, probably by age four and a half or something like that, apparently. And this was back in the oldie days, and there was some hardback orange-covered books that were called the Landmark series, and they were all history books. And so by the age of five, I was learning about Madison, Jefferson, Hamilton, and heaven alone knows what. So, you know, as I said, it may sound like a re an incredibly boring comment, uh, but... You know, she was the one who got me started on the road. The other part, which is non-trivial, is I think relative to people, is I had an incredible set of elementary school teachers. And I'm really convinced, and I think there's science on the side of this, that an awful lot of you, you know, obviously there's the nature part, but an awful lot of the nurture part is if you, uh, you know, really did have a upbringing we, we didn't have any money or anything like that it was a it was a rural school six miles seven miles from the naval academy outside of annapolis maryland but uh you know so so it's it's the it's the early stuff the other the other person i would mention not to take the entire interview up with the answer is uh i went to stanford got an mba at stanford for the simple reason that i had 
just gotten out of the Navy and had no idea what it was that I wanted to do. So, you know, business school was better than, uh, you know, panhandling on the street. And along the way, I met a fellow by the name of Gene Webb, who became my mentor. And I ended up sticking around at his uh, request for a PhD in organizational behavior. And that's important because I was trained as an engineer and then I got an MBA and he really woke me up to the incredible wonder and complexity of the human side of organizations for which uh, you know, I am eternally grateful. The other one, one more, have to do one more. Hmm. Up the entire. The, the other one is since my parents didn't have any money and since I wanted to go to a good school, uh, I called the Secretary of the Navy and said, will you pay my tuition through a school, which of course is a total lie, uh, but the Naval ROTC, NROTC program paid my way through college. Uh, near the end of that college, uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson thought it would be cool to have a little tip in Vietnam. I went to Vietnam, and right along with my mother, it's the top two. My dad was a lovely guy, I'm not dismissing him, was the top two, was my first commanding officer um, at uh, U.S. Naval Construction Battalion 9, which is Navy CB, and he was just amazing. All the people stuff, basically all the people stuff that I talk about is just, you know, what would Captain Anderson have done? And uh, he w I got really lucky because I had two commanding officers on two deployments. One was the best human being in the world, and one was the worst human being in the world. And I said to somebody, I never needed to take a leadership course. It's just, what would Commander Anderson have done, or Captain Anderson, as he was called? That's the good stuff. And what would, I will not name the guy I didn't like, even though he's passed away, I call him Voldemort. What would Voldemort have done? <laughs> so so that's, that's my long-winded answer to your innocent question. Well, let's dig into that a little bit more. You had a very eventful time in those early years. You served in Vietnam. You served in the Nixon White House. What did you, what were you evolving toward? What did you learn at that time? I mean, the Nixon White House had so much talent, much of it's forgotten today, given the ending of it. What did you come out with? Uh, well, there's a there's a twofer there. Uh, to pay back the Navy for my tuition, I was in for four years. The first two were in Vietnam, and the second two were in the Pentagon. As I like to smart alecky put it, the real hot war was the Pentagon. Vietnam was a piece of cake by comparison. Uh, but in the, at the Pentagon, I learned about huge organizations. There were 22,000 of us in the same building. And so, you know, I had known what it was like to be in an 800-person battalion with an incredible commanding officer. And now I saw, I won't say bureaucracy at its worst, but big bureaucracy. And the Nixon White House was partially that experience as well. The, the deal was on why I was there was, and I know we're kind of in the midst of one these days, there was an incredible heroin crisis that, and there's not much hyperbole in this, that brought New York City uh, practically to its knees. And so we started, and it's gone in some really lousy directions as far as I'm concerned, but we started the war on drugs 
and I was recruited to be part of a little staff office uh, that the White House established. It was called SEODAP, Special Assistant to the Office of, Pre office of the President for Drug Abuse Policy, uh, and I was recruited for that. Uh, and it was an amazing learning experience that we could go into, but the last year of my two years were the impeachment years. And I always call it one of my great accomplishments. Nixon left Washington for California on the 8th of August, 1974. I got out on the 1st of August. So <laughs> I beat him by seven days. But, you know, it was a, well, I mean, one of the things, and this has no bearing on anybody who is or was president, uh, I was a ludicrously junior staffer with a ludicrously monstrous ego during that period I was associated with the White House. I decided that since I was on that staff, therefore I could walk on water. And it was awful. My, my uncle was a Marine Corps general who uh, was served in Guadalcanal and so on, and he was headquartered in Washington at the time, the number two guy in the Marine Corps. And I remember one time at dinner, I had Doherty and I will not say this in front of a family audience, but he looked at me when I made some comment and he said, you have turned into a first class word begins with A. And I have never been so flabbergasted in my life, nor have I learned so much in one word. So, you know, there's, there's some, something about that White House thing, and I don't care whether it's somebody who's far to the left or far to the right that really makes a mess of your head. Maybe not, maybe not FDR. And Reagan too. Well, no, Reagan and FDR had old guys advising him, who would tell them to stuff it if they needed to stuff it. And JFK is the one who screwed it up. He was the one who brought the 24-year-olds onto the staff, and so on. And I'm not being fair with such generalization, but there's a lot of truth in it, truth to it. Yeah. So let's talk a moment about leadership in general. Now, you have stressed in numerous ways that leadership ultimately, when you tear it all back, is all about service, serving others. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, I use Twitter a lot. And I'm gonna, well, for, first of all, and this is kind of a, a cheap one-liner, but it was my one-liner anyway. I've said that organizational life is 100% about service. It is about people serving, people serving, people, which means leaders serving their frontline employees who do the work, who in turn serve the customer. And so, you know, you're big on that word and I'm big on that word. You know, the, I, I was highly amused when my last book came out and I, you know, probably did 20 or 25 podcasts, which is what you do for publicity now. And honest to God, 23 of the 25 said to me with kind of, you know, amazement, will you write about people an awful lot, Tom? <laughs> Again, I couldn't use my Navy language. I said, what the heck, which I didn't say, what the heck else is there to write about? And I called, I called, I, I you know, I was, I, I think I did it in the the Excellence Dividend book, and I'm writing something now. I said, leadership 
and boy, do I believe this, and I am 99% sure you will agree. I said leadership is the highest possible human aspiration. And that is so because you will only be successful if you devote your life to developing people to be better than they were before you came in contact with them. And I, I drew this example. I said, you know, the, the reality is, I'm an old guy and I've had surgeries from now and then, but a leader has the opportunity to change the lives of more people than any surgeon who has ever lived. You know, if I've got you only for three months on a project team, let alone for three years, if I'm really into your development and pressing you to learn and grow, I can make a huge difference in your life. And the other part of it, speaking again as an old guy, as I like to put it, I have only one test of my effectiveness in life, and that is, can I walk past a mirror and not bark? And what that translates into me, in my mind, is helping people. And I think leadership is a serving business, as you said. I think it is a helping business. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, as I said, I use Twitter a lot. And somebody on Twitter was going on about Elon Musk and said he was one of the incredibly most great people in the world or something. And my tweet that I responded is I said, I really admire Mr. Musk. I almost, I admire him almost as much as I admire a truly talented second grade teacher who changes the lives of 18 or 19 or 22 kids year in and year out. And I, you know, there was zero hyperbole in that. I really believe it. So yeah, serve, 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 help, help, help and you are as good as the people who you have influenced throughout your life. So how do you include the problem or the question posed by some very effective leaders in certain realms who sometimes seem to be very self-serving? Like Steve Jobs, based on Walter Isaacson's definitive work, had some pretty disappointing sides as well as extraordinary accomplishments. How do you sort this out? Well, you use the key word in that sentence, I, meaning me. Uh, I, I understand Jobs became a slightly more gentle giant after he became ill. But I actually consulted for a while, a year or so, to, to Apple in the really early days, must have been 83 or 84. And the way that Jobs treated his fellow human beings was despicable. And I don't care if you invented fire and water. If you behave like a jerk to your fellow human beings, I have no respect for you and I have no admiration for you, period. And yes, I was raised as a Presbyterian, but I haven't darkened the doors of a church much in my adult age. So this is not someone who's an evangelical, you know, telling you that God will smile on you, but I can't forgive him. You know, somebody would have invented the iPhone later on, and, and, and people who misbehave toward people uh, just, they don't 
cut the mustard. And I certainly agree that they can become billionaires and they can give us iPhones. But to me, they are, are I don't say anything like shriveled or despicable. They're people for whom I have zero respect and I have zero respect for Steve Jobs. Let's turn a minute to your latest book, The Excellence Dividend. What are your observations on what's new in 21st century leadership and the kind of issues that you're closely focused on today, just as you've identified the key issues previously? Well, I think what's different is everything and nothing. Uh, I, it's difficult, obviously, to keep up these days, but I am, per my open or your opening question, I am an inveterate reader, and you know, before I wrote the book, spent about a year uh, reading about artificial intelligence and reading about you know all the all the stuff that's going on these days. So I'm not at the front of the pack, but I'm not a total idiot. Uh, my real answer is, what's changed? Everything and nothing. Uh, I believe, and this has nothing to do with 2050. Uh, a, given my age, other than for my kids, I don't care about it that much. Uh, the whole world is not going to flip upside down in the next 10 or 15 years. And I completely understand the power of artificial intelligence. But I believe, and obviously there are people who would challenge me, and a lot of them are smarter than I am, that this redoubles the stuff that I've been talking about. Uh, you know, I, I believe, and I did write this in the book and said it before, that every leader now has, I mean, it's also a good way to make money, but every leader has a moral obligation to ensure that every person who follows them, whether for three months or three years, is better prepared for the future when they left than they were when they came. Uh, there is this thing, and again, I'm not talking as an expert, which is IA versus AI. And the AI is obviously artificial intelligence. The IA is intelligence augmented. You know, I write about a, uh, a bank who's kind of my role model in the excellence dividend called Commerce Bank originally in the U.S. It now is another version called Metro Bank in the U.K. And all, all the retail bankers or small commercial bankers are closing branches and throwing people on the streets. This guy wants them in the branches. He wants a spectacular experience. Uh, and he's pulled it off. Even in stuffy England, when he opens a new branch, 3,000 people show up. Uh, and he's, his, his line, which are lines, which I love, and I think I can do it for men, is cost cutting is a death spiral. Spend your way to success. Invest in your people. Invest in your facilities. And, and that still can be the name of the game. Maybe not in 2050. But 20, 20, 20, 30 for 10 or 15 years, I, I just think it works. I think I, I, uh, I actually, I haven't done anything about them, but I bought two domain names, uh, one of which is extreme employee engagement, and the other one is extreme humanization. Uh, 
I believe that extreme humanization of services and products will keep you in business. I, I mean, look, uh, retail. Retail stores are, are closing at the rate of a, roughly a jillion an hour. Uh, I went into a store, I, I wish, I, I mean, I could mention it, but it doesn't serve any purpose. Uh, it was a bookstore chain. It was two weeks before Christmas. I had a ton of books that I was headed toward the checkout with. And there was one person manning the checkout booth, and there were 20 of us in line. Now, bookstores are closing, chains are closing left and right. Your only defense is an awesome customer experience. Contrast that to a guy to whom I dedicated the book among a handful of others whose name is Jungle Jim Bonamino. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he has a grocery store in Fairfield, Ohio, and it's called Jungle Jim's International Market. If you know him, you're only allowed to call him Jungle. They have something like 50,000 visitors a month from all over the world. They have jillions of selections. They have entertainment galore, and it's doing great. Uh, and that's my extreme humanization. You've got to be really, really special. You know, your your ordinary is out. As I wrote in something I'm writing right now, right now, I said, excellence was a wonderful idea for differentiation when I wrote my first book in 1982. Uh, excellence today is table stakes. If you want to stay in business, let's talk a moment because uh, you also are very well known for your focus on design and communities. What do you see happening to a lot of these physical malls that are going out? Some of them are simply abandoned. Others are beginning to get different kinds of local uses. Do you see opportunities in that that ought to be viewed in a bigger sense, or where do you see that heading? Uh, there are always opportunities. I mean, one, one of the things, I don't know whether you're guilty of this, but I sure as heck am, and I've said it's true of the whole management guru class, is we behave as if the American economy is the Fortune 500. Uh, the reality is that something like 8% of us work for the Fortune 500, and the other 92% work for, in the main, small and medium-sized enterprises. So the crap is hitting the fan for the big guys. It's that cost-cutting is a death spiral, which is what most of the big retail chains have done. But you know, there, there are a guy by the name of Blank, whose book I endorsed, just put out a book, Adam, Adam Davidson. He was one of the uh, Planet Money guy, is one of the Planet Money guys uh, at NPR. He wrote a book called The Passion Economy. And it is a study of all kinds of strange people and strange businesses and strange corners that have done these amazing things. So... I'm not sure that I could imagine, what is that, there's a giant mall near Harrisburg or York, Pennsylvania with a jillion stores. I don't know whether those can survive, but you know, there, there, are, there are just so, I'm just sitting here flagellating myself with a whip. There's so many wonderful businesses with wonderful people who make huge differences that have two, three, five, 10, 15, 20, 30, 70, 90 employees, 
And there's always an opportunity to do an incredibly great, highly differentiated. You know, the, there was, I've forgotten the book that it was in, uh, but one of the things, one of the companies I mentioned in uh, the Excellence Dividend was a tiny swimming pool company in rural Virginia that decided to go after the web thing and they now have the most popular website on earth for things associated with pools and pool equipment and so on and it's and that guy Jungle Jim Bonamino with 50,000 visitors a month you you can you can always wildly differentiate something and create something that is a spark for a community i was i was uh uh my wife and I were going away and there was an engineering company that had done some work for us and somehow or other the mail had bounced or something and so I was driving to see them so that I could hand them a paper check and, and pay the bill before I left town. I think we were headed for New Zealand. And I drove past one of those little malls that's not a mall where there were you know 20 stores, there was a tailor shop, there was a uh, this shop and that shop and I thought to myself thinking of things like unemployment what if each of these businesses let's just for the heck of it say they had nine employees each what if they could over the next 24 months increase their employee numbers from 9 to 18 by doing fabulous work for their little clients and, and you know think if you had 500,000 of those little companies that went from nine you know metaphorically to 18 incredible job creation you are identified with as we see today your tremendous optimism your confidence in the future adaptation innovation there's a lot of talk today where people are sort of taking sides. Some people are saying, well, capitalism in America has failed and needs to be replaced. Socialism is being revived as an alternative. How do you respond to that kind of debate and what should the terms properly be in your view? Uh, there, remember they tore down Joe Paterno's statue at Penn State at the University of Chicago, they should tear down Milton Friedman's statue. Mm. I, I do not believe that capitalism is dead, but relative to the big companies, it went off the rails when this maximizing shareholder value movement started in 1970. Uh, you, know, you live not far from the Drucker Institute, and they're kind of making this the centerpiece of their work. Here, here's a, here's a, a little quantitative piece. In 1970, before shareholder value maximization, 50% of big company profits went to shareholders and managers, and 50% went to people and investment in R&D and facilities. Almost 50 years later, how much money now goes to employees in R&D? Not 50%, but 9%. Wow. 91% goes to share buybacks, 
sixty million dollar a year salaries for the chairman of Boeing, who's made it impossible for me to walk onto a Boeing aircraft without being scared half to death, uh, and shareholders. So, and my old employer's McKinsey and Company uh, did a really rigorous study, and they discovered using the hardest nosed measures known to humankind, they discovered that companies that invest for the long term wildly outperform the ones who are living 90 days at a time. So I'm more than willing to say that capitalism among big businesses is screwed up beyond recognition, but the alternative is the ability to change and have capitalism deliver on what it promised. You're not delivering on what you promised if you're a banker who is just throwing your employees out on the streets as you close branches. That's not capitalism. That's cruelty. Uh, and it is absolutely not necessary in any business or any interest uh, industry. So focus on the long term, focus on the people, and get stinking filthy rich as a capitalist in the process. I, I've said to people, I'm, I'm a good capitalist pig, and I believe that, in fact, it is entirely possible. I mean, the whole damn point, you talked about service, you know, the whole point of the enterprise is to employ people, to give them great lives, to have them use those lives, to serve their customers and their communities. And, uh, you know, you can, you can be as capitalist a pig as you want, and you should be believing in that because it's the best way to make a ton of money. Well, what's well, occurred that has these guy the banker excuse me who, who uh, you know the, the banker who kept branches open uh, when he was running Commerce Bank in the US he created 17,000 new jobs and did his high employment no cost cutting thing work I don't know the bank started from fresh and when he sold the bank he sold it to Toronto Dominion Bank for eight point six billion dollars wow. so by golly that high employment thing must have been worth something what has happened that has resulted in so many of these people often highly credentialed uh, becoming CEOs or supporting law finance consulting people that has brought us to this point and how do we get out of it uh, Good question. Uh, again, back to our friends and your friends too at the at the Drucker Institute. Uh, the worm has not turned, but the worm is beginning to turn. Uh, somebody, oh my heavens! Oh, 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 oh! Short-term memory. One of our, and I'm not talking Warren Buffett here, from whom you would expect it. One of our great uh, Wall Street profit maximizing to the end people has said I was wrong we're going to look at this in a balanced fashion um, I happen to believe particularly when I watch the photographs from Australia that climate change is an enormous problem uh, the head of BlackRock something like just two days ago said that he was going to stop investing I think in hydrocarbons and other things and in industries that made a mess of the environment uh, I, you know 
I, I'm a critic of all the professional schools, practically. Medicine, business, engineering, they're kind of at the top of my list. And that is they all teach mechanics and none of them teach the people stuff. It was fascinating. There's a Canadian by the name of Henry Mintzberg who is my favorite business guru. And Henry did an interesting study a few years ago. And the graduates of professional schools like engineering and business got jobs that got twice as many job offers at twice the price of liberal arts people. 20 years out, the liberal arts people had eclipsed the engineers and the MBAs. Because among other things, in liberal arts, you learn that pe people matter. And so, I, it's just, I, I'm, I'm not, you, you accuse me far too much of being an optimist. The, uh, the technical uncertainty is too high. Economists who are good capitalist pigs and smarter than you and me put together are saying 50% of jobs will be replaced by AI in the next 20 years. That, that's kind of extreme. So you know, it, it's going to be a, a rough ride. And I have no idea whether I'm an optimist or not about where we're going to be 50 years from now. Um, but I am an optimist of where... I could be if I were the CEO of a giant company today and looking ahead for the next four or five years. Well, two follow-ups, if I might. On one, do you think that for all the talk about the change in today's world, that people today are experiencing as much change as people were going through a century ago? Uh well, it's funny, and I also put this in, in, in my book. Uh, my mom died at 96 in 2005, and I, I, the question you just asked, I metaphorically asked, I guess it's metaphorically or whatever, in my last book, remember I was trained as an engineer, my comprehension of English is very low. Uh, I, I, I did the whole thing, same thing you did, all this crazy, that crazy, and I said, what did my mother go through between 1909 and 2005? Ah, yes. Nothing. World yes. War One, World War Two, the Cold War, the Iraqi War, she went through the Great Depression, she went through cars becoming something of a, from being something of a rarity to everybody owning two. She went through movies, she went through television, she went through the computer age, she went through a man landing on the moon, and I don't at all fail to acknowledge that what we're going through is crazy, but if it's my mom versus the average person today, my mom nails it by a country mile. Absolutely. I mean, they didn't have electrification of many people. They didn't have radio, television, social s safety net. Uh, you know, it's unbelievable what people born in the era of your mom did. And I guess it makes me uneasy when I hear people today speaking so glibly as if we're in much more difficult times, including on the economic change, the move from the agriculture to the industrial age and the immense dislocations and even violence. Uh, not to minimize today's issues, but wow. 
Well, they are calling this, which which does scare the dickens out of me, the third big revolution. And we did go from farms to factories, but back to my mom, it wasn't pretty. Yes. Uh, by the time we had shaken the, I mean, World War One and World War Two were basically the final death throes of the transition away from agriculture. So one hopes for the sake of our kids and grandkids, that this next trans transition will not be as bloody. And I'm not talking politics here, but when we see people who are so distressed in our own country by what's happened uh, from automation and so on, there ain't no guarantee that we're not gonna have people shooting at each other as this great transition um, happens over the next 40 or 50 years. I, I pray that it's not the case, but I'm not willing to bet my last penny on it. Well, as you're presenting it, education sounds as though it's central to your thinking. I'd like to turn to a moment for something I know you've talked about that's very provocative and interesting, and I believe it may come from a quote from Peter Drucker, who referred to graduates of MBA programs and perhaps other professional schools as liable to become competent mediocrities. What do you think about that? Um, I got one of them MBAs and uh, I could not agree more wholeheartedly, I am sorry to say. I graduated from the Stanford Business School and the dean was a guy by the name of Bob Jedicke. In Search of Excellence came out. I was merciless in my criticism of business schools. I was invited back to my alma mater to give a speech to the, you know, the, the student body. And Dean Jedicke refused to introduce me because I had been so rude to, to, to those schools. Uh, I, I might even use stronger words than, than uh, Mr. Drucker did. I wish it was mediocrities. But I think they put spreadsheets ahead of people. Uh, and, and, and that is always a sin as far as, as, far as I'm concerned. Uh, I don't know that I would close all the business schools or any such thing. I, I've got a meeting tomorrow, and it's with the chancellor of the University of Massachusetts at Dart, uh, Dartmouth and the head of the engineering school and the head of the business school and it's to talk about exactly this. How do we humanize these damn professional schools so we turn out people who are well versed? Let, listen, let me, let me tell you my, you asked about business schools but your answer is going to come in engineering school. So I went to Cornell University which is a great engineering school. And I graduated with pretty decent grades. And I graduated as a thoroughly competent engineer, if untested. As I said, the Navy paid my way through school. Uh, about four months after graduation, my plane landed in Da Nang, Vietnam at midnight. Um, I got off the plane, got the address from the commanding officer, and I'm not saying that the chief petty officers don't run the Navy or the sergeants run the Army, but legally, within a day of arriving, I was effectively responsible for the lives of 15 sailors who technically worked for me. 
my preparation for dealing and leading human beings was zero. The way my CVs worked is we went over for nine months, we came home for three months, and we went back for nine months. When I came home after my first deployment, after visiting my mom and dad, the next thing I did was to go up to Cornell, to go into the civil engineering's dean, dean's office, and look him in the eye. I don't even know whether they let me in, the, I mean, I, whether somebody let me in or whether I crashed through the door. Look him in the eye, and I said, you screwed me. You gave me the best engineering education in the world, but like most graduates, I was into some kind of a project management or leadership position, in my case in Vietnam, and I was totally unprepared. Now listen, that was 1966. It is well over 50 years before our conversation, and I am still pissed off at that dean. And, and that sounds parallel to Warren Bennis's early experience. Yeah, no, I, I think that I, absolutely. Warren, I think, was actually the youngest second army second lieutenant in the uh, in the European U.S. Army, obviously sec, uh, second lieutenant in the European theater. And 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 yes, it was it was an exact parallel to uh, Warren's stuff. And my God, do I miss Warren? Not as much as my mother, but almost. <laughs> well. And I hope we're going to be able to do this again because there's so many things one would want to ask and learn from you. Can I turn this to you personally a bit at this point as far as you're comfortable? You study not only and work with current companies and very active in the current scene, you're deeply engaged in thinking about history and therefore have a real sense of the future. I think something that would interest a lot of people with your many accomplishments and the, the fact you keep learning and growing so effectively, how do you do it? How do you try to personally apply in your own life and work, to the extent you want to feel it, uh, how do you apply the lessons of the resilience, the grit, the coming back from setbacks or betrayals that everyone faces but so many? buckle under and only a few like Winston Churchill almost seems like he's oblivious to it. How do you work well, that through? I'm going to give you the opposite from the answer you want and then I'll try to give you the answer that you want. Uh, I was in London giving a speech and I was being driven around by a fellow who had you know, been up and down. He was not exactly a youngster. You know, I don't know what I said that triggered it and he turned around to me. Well, I hope he didn't turn around the whole way. We were in London. <laughs> he metaphorically turned around to me and he said, you know, there are two people who ride in the back seat of this car. And I said, tell me. He said, there are people who remember their roots and there are people who think they deserve to be in the back seat. And, you know, I was besieged by blind luck starting from my pure genius of picking my parents. I was born in 1942. My other genius was to be white, male, American, and all of which counted for millions and millions of points in the right direction. So, you know, I have had a successful life, and I will say a couple of things about that. Uh, but anybody... 
anybody who is successful to a significant degree. Well, there's a guy by the name of Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Yes. He wrote a book called, he wrote The Black Swan that he's most famous for, but his first book, which I adored, was called Fooled by Randomness. And the one-liner I remember from that book is he said, if you are born of intelligent parents, and if you work like heck during your adult life, the odds are pretty darn high that you will have a good career. If it's better than a good career, it was random blind luck. And, and, and I, I'm sorry, I, I, I really do believe that. I, I said to somebody, and this is a little extreme, I said, I hate mass murderers, I hate rapists and child abusers, but number three on my list is several people who believe they deserve it. None of us did uh, in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I, I, you know, I go back to my first answer at some level. My mother taught curiosity, and I think that's huge. My mother and father were both incredibly hard workers, and so I learned hard work for them, and I learned some intellectual skills. Uh, but uh, you know I can give the list which I believe which is integrity and so on and so forth well I've had moments when I didn't have integrity I'd like to write a memoir though that's very egocentric but I, I don't think I can because there's some things that I did that none of it was illegal but there's some things that I did that I'm not sure I want to put in print and you know, I was talking to somebody who's actually a fiction writer, and she said to me, I'm sure that's true, Tom. That just means you're a member of the human race. Uh, <laughs> we've, always, we've all got some deeds and days which uh, are memorable, but not in the way that we would like to write down. So, uh, you know, always, always challenge yourself. I don't even know that. It's like, get, there was, there's a, my French is zero. Uh, and there was a quote I used in the book that came from Napoleon and the English translation, I will not even try the French, was jump into the fray and then try to figure out what to do next. Uh, I have never had a life plan. Uh, I never knew where I was going to be the day after tomorrow. Uh, but I do like to respond to what I do with as much energy and enthusiasm as is possible and you know and this has a lot to do for people who are listening to us who are selecting people I get off on people nobody should be promoted to any leadership position anywhere if they don't get off on people yes you have to know the numbers yes you have to know somebody who's great at spreadsheets but it's all about people. There's a, I, I wrote about him in my book. There's a guy who runs a ph pharmaceutical company, uh, one of the new pharmaceutical companies, and he said, our secret is we only hire nice people. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and he said, look, he said, of course I need PhDs in advanced microbiology. But what? There are a lot of them out there. Don't hire the jerks. And, you know, I just, just read an article about healthcare performance, and somebody did something that had never been done on the good side, and they said, we stopped hiring for degrees, and we started hiring for people who had human empathy. 
and the whole world was flipped upside down. Uh, and, and you know, I, I'm a hope, hopeless person. You know, I talk to everybody. Uh, <laughs> I and my wife said, "Why do you talk to cab drivers?" I was in Washington at the time, and I said, "Susan, it's because they're so much more interesting than I am." Half of the cab drivers in Washington came from Ethiopia. Yes. Been through starvation. They've been through civil war. Probably had a third cousin beheaded three blocks from home. They've had interesting lives. I've been a spoiled brat ever since I did that excellence in parental selection. Parental selection. <laughs> well, uh, as we head toward closing. Actually, that's my answer. Now, that's going to help our listeners. <laughs> that's a great answer. Uh, enjoy yourself. Love people. If you're a boss, don't hire un nice people. Colleen Barrett, who was the president of Southwest Airlines, was asked their secret, and she said, we hire for listening, caring, smiling, saying thank you, and being warm. And that wow. is just as important in a pilot or a mechanic as it is in ground personnel, the flight attendant or the person at the check-in desk. And that, that stuff that stuff matters. If you want to have a place that helps people develop and is incredibly decent to your customers, hire people who have that in their background. They're there. Mm-hmm. Well, could you share with us, are there a handful of books or even artworks that are particularly influential on you that you might recommend that others become acquainted with? Wow. Um, that's really tough because I'm such a voracious reader. One thing I believe is if you want to be an effective leader, read all of Dickens or read, you know, <laughs> read all of Jane Austen. Uh, and, I, and I say that because of what we just have been saying for the last hour to each other, that it's all about people. And good fiction is about relationships and people getting on and people not getting on. So you know, Dickens and Austin would be a would be a good start, and I'm serious uh, about that. The only art story which I'm not sure fits your bill is I am am not art oriented. For God's sakes, I mean, when people say Tom, you're so people oriented, I said that may be true, but don't forget I have four quant degrees from good school. <laughs> I'm a recovering MBA and engineer. Uh, art was not a huge part of my life, but I did fall in love with Peter Bruegel, the elder, and he did a painting that was called, I had it in my mind when I started this sentence, The Triumph of Death, which isn't very cheery. It's the only time I've done anything like this in my life. I became so enthralled by the painting. I lived in San Francisco, or actually Palo Alto at the time that I flew from San Francisco International to Madrid to go to the Prado and look at that painting and then turn around and come home the next day. Uh, the, you know, I, I've argued in this uh, attack of mine on MBAs uh, that I think a core course for business students should be fine arts. And you, you know, you, you, in it, or not inadvertently, you passingly said very early on something about my focus on design. I believe that design is the number one differentiator today, and I believe that you know every 
product development team ought to have an artist, ought to have a theater major, ought to have a musician in addition to whatever engineers or accountants are required. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's not much of an answer to your, to your question, but that's the best that, that's what I uh, think I can do. Well, it's an excellent answer. And can I ask you two more questions? Yes, sir. Uh, one is Frank Lloyd Wright. Have you thought about him and his work? Well, yes, but <laughs> that's, that's a weird question. Uh, I mean, not, it's not a weird question at all. Uh, at some point in my life, for reasons unknown, I decided I wanted to be an architect. And I actually went to Cornell uh, and matriculated in the architecture school. And if you matriculated in architecture in the 60s, or in my case, 1960 exactly, uh, you were a Frank Lloyd Wright person. And I fell in love with Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, but later I, oh God, pattern, 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 pattern language. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Christopher Alexander who wrote a book called Pattern Language, and it was about architecture. Somebody called it the best architecture book in 50 years. And back to the theme of this conversation, it was about the humanization of the architecture that we have. You know, he said, never build a house on top of a hill. Build a house halfway down the hill where you can actually see what's going on. Don't put a picture window in. Put a small window in where you catch the snowfall out of the corner of your eye. It's not blasted at you like a large screen TV. I, I, you know, the, 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 my next three sentences are not what you asked at all. <laughs> I was good at engineering. I was good at math. I won math and engineering pri prizes in high school. I wanted to go to architecture school. It was a little school that had been a Naval Academy prep school called Severn School outside of Annapolis, Maryland. My mother and the headmaster were in cahoots. I was <laughs> at three universities, and Paul Kesmodel, who was the headmaster, and my mother got together, and they sent said, we'll send him out for that architecture degree, but let's send him to a school that also has good engineering. <laughs> and so I ended up transferring after one semester uh, to engineering at Cornell. And back, and, and back to randomness, I can't decide because it, whether it was because I didn't have good architecture schools or because I was having an incredible girlfriend problem. <laughs> yeah, the honest answer. Whatever it was, I went to engineering, and you know that was the beginning of the story. Huh. Well, if we could close by looking to Claire Booth Luce's famous admonition to John Kennedy that everyone, even presidents, are ultimately encapsulated in a single sentence. What would you like your one sentence to be? My third book called Driving on Chaos in 1987 was dedicated to a couple of people, one of whose names was William Donald Schaefer. Yes. Now, is in trouble again, but Don Schaefer, William Donald Schaefer, was a mayor who just absolutely turned that city around. And when he retired from the mayor's job, um, I was invited to a big thing in, in Baltimore where they celebrated you know, his life and so on and so forth. 
And finally, obviously, it became time for Mayor Schaefer to, uh, to get up and make his response. And I don't remember what he said, except for, back to your opening point here, uh, two words. He said, if I could choose what was put on my tombstone, I would choose two words. He cared. Um, caring and engagement with your fellow human being, uh, you know, and, and maybe it's just an old man talking, but uh, it's, it is, I mean, what, for God's sakes, what else is there? <laughs> well, beautifully said. And Tom Peters, how can listeners best follow and connect with you in social media? Uh, I am a Twitter addict. And uh, they can do my Tom underscore Peters and find my rantings and ravings and blothering at Twitter. And I'm pretty much active every day. So that's my social media pick of choice. Well, brilliant. Well, Tom Peters, thank you so much for being here today. And I want to also thank our listeners for being with us. And please rate us highly on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok or connect at our website serve to lead.org. Hey, thanks so much for this opportunity.